Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk. Well, we've got another busy week in the national security space from FBI agents raiding the D.C. home of Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska to Moscow's response to NATO's expulsion of eight Russian liaison staffers who were accused of espionage earlier this month to the opening of a trial in Cincinnati of an alleged top Chinese espionage agent who's accused of organizing a spy ring to steal U.S. aviation secrets. Speaking of spy wars, we're going to introduce you today to David Barnea, the new boss of Israel's legendary foreign intelligence agency, Mossad. But first, back to Chinese intelligence gathering here. Gene, you've got a head-scratching segment coming up about the Secret Service and FBI buying surveillance drones from, wait for it, China. Yeah, concerns about Chinese technology and its impact on security certainly aren't anything new. But four years after alarms were first raised about these Chinese surveillance drones, the FBI and Secret Service are purchasing them. The worry is that the data the drones collect will be funneled back to the Chinese government. They do a lot of obviously very sensitive work in You don't want a potentially hostile foreign power or foreign intelligence service to know what they are watching at what time, uh, to you know be able to track uh, routines in U.S. counter surveillance uh, efforts, things along those lines. That you know theoretically, these sorts of products could pose a, a, a potential risk. In we'll hear more from Lachlan Marquet of Axios about his reporting on these Chinese drones, how they're being used and how they might be exploited in just a bit. Now to Israel, where a new boss is settling in as head of its fabled foreign spying arm, Mossad. His name is David Barnea, and he's a far cry in style, at least from his publicity-seeking predecessor, according to Jonathan Broder, a longtime Middle East hand and contributing editor to our Spy Talk news site over at Substack. Jonathan Broder, welcome to Spy Talk. So Mossad, the legendary Israeli spy agency, has a new boss. There's a new sheriff in town. Tell us about him. Well, his name is David Barnea. He's 56 years old, and he was actually recruited uh, in 1996 from a career in banking. But before that, he had been in this elite Israeli military unit when he was doing his military service. It's called Sayyat Matkal, which means literally the chief of staff scouts. In other words, a, a, a reconnaissance unit for the top military commander in Israel. And that required uh, him being a bit of a fitness buff. It was exactly. kind of required. So yes. you, you, you tell the story about that. Yeah, well, uh, uh, in order to get in shape to meet the rigorous physical demands for this unit, he pedaled a bicycle. It was actually a tandem bicycle with a blind Israeli officer, uh, army officer, from a lot, which is in the southern part of Israel, all the way down to Sharm el-Sheikh, 
which is at the tip of the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt. It's a distance of about 250 kilometers or about 140 miles each way. Anyway, he was in this unit, went into banking. He went to school in the United States to learn finance and economics. Mm-hmm. Got a job at a major bank in Tel Aviv, but apparently got very bored with the banking life and wanted to get back into the action. So he actually enlisted in the Mossad. He went through uh, case officer training for about eight months, uh, 18 months, I think is the course. And then he rose up through the ranks to become the station chief in Europe, recruiting agents and informants to spy for Israel. And that required a lot of uh, intense training and experience. Uh, You don't get into that kind of job unless you've uh, become a master at recruiting and managing spies. That, I guess, in part explains how he rose up through the ranks so quickly. That makes him a little bit different from a number of CIA directors, by the way, who come out of the political sector or the diplomatic sector, to which Bill Burns, the current director of CIA, was a career State Department diplomat. But Mossad tends to uh, promote from within, doesn't it? Um, they do. And it's, it's a much smaller organization than the CIA. And just about every director of the Mossad, I can't think of any that haven't been, have all been case officers. They've done a lot of recruiting. They know what that life is like. They've been out in the field. It builds an enormous amount of trust in the director when a case officer in the field knows that his boss has done what, what, what he is doing. Sure. And, and uh, I suppose has not screwed up any big operations. Speaking of operations, under the previous director, Yossi Cohen, Barnea became head of operations at Mossad. And this was during a time when Israel was carrying out spectacular operations inside Iran, or in the view of others, scurrilous operations inside Iran. Tell us about uh, one of the operations that came under his purview. Well, uh, Barnea became the head of operations in 2018 and was in that position until he became the, the director of the Mossad in this past June. So one of the big operations that he did was in 2020, in November of 2020, the Mossad assassinated the chief Iranian nuclear scientist a man by the name of Mohsen Fakhrizadeh. And the, the way that he was killed was he was killed by killer robot, if you will, a remote-controlled machine gun that was mounted on the back of a truck and was connected to a computer, which then linked up with the satellite. And the actual sniper who opened fire on Fakhrizadeh was a thousand miles away in Israel looking at the, uh, the, through the gun sites, through a computer. So when Fakhrizada came into view, he opened fire and, uh, and killed him. By the way, his wife, Fakhrizada's wife, was right next to him, and uh, she was unscratched, with no collateral damage whatsoever. And also Israel carried, or Mossad carried out uh, operations in concert with the uh, United States and Iran. Isn't that correct? That's right. He was involved in a joint operation that killed um, Soleimani, General Soleimani, Qasem Soleimani, who is the head of the Quds Force uh, in the Revolutionary Guards. That was an American hit, but the Israelis and 
particularly Barnea, assisted the Americans in setting that up. And then there was another hit right in Tehran, right, of an al-Qaeda personage. Yes, the Israelis found out that there was a, an al-Qaeda personage there. It was a, a very, very senior al-Qaeda operative who was involved in the uh, 9-11 attack, uh, at least in planning it. And the Israelis told the Americans about his location there. And then as a favor to the Americans, the Israelis killed him. Now, we've heard a lot about these operations, and it's kind of odd that a secret service would virtually brag about these operations through selective leaks to uh, favored Israeli reporters and so on. But uh, from what you have heard in your reporting on this piece, Jonathan Broder, we're not likely to hear much more about Israeli operations in the future. And that makes David Barnea very different from his predecessor, Yossi Cohen. Exactly. Barnea uh, met with a large group of former senior Mossad officials, and he warned them that they will be punished if they talk to the media either on the record or off the record about current or even past Mossad spy operations without his permission. They must get his permission first. And from what I heard from my sources, he is very unlikely to give it. Now, this is a 180 degree turnaround from the way things were under Barnea's predecessor, Yossi Cohen, who was a very, very high profile Mossad director. He met with reporters, he briefed them, he gave public speeches. He was a impeccably, always impeccably dressed, his hair always, uh, you know, coiffed and perfectly cut. He was known within the Mossad as the model, like the male model. He very much uh, cultivated that image. What do we know about David Barnea's personal style? He sounds, coming out of banking, he sounds like he might be some Israeli version of James Bond. You know, a guy who could kill you with six different martinis. Well, it's funny. His, his, his background in banking has helped him, even though he didn't like banking, the background that he accrued in banking has helped him in his intelligence work by helping him, for example, set up shell companies for mm-hmm. the Mossad to carry out operations. Mm-hmm. What does that mean, a shell company to carry out Mossad it's operations? It's basically a non-existent company. It's a, it's a company that's just on paper where it has like a, a mailbox in the Bahamas. That's about it. Of course, actually, you have to do more than that to uh, survive the scrutiny of a hostile intelligence service. Remember the movie Argo? Uh, They set up the Hollywood production company, and it actually existed to a certain degree. John Goodman played that famous role of the Hollywood guy who uh, created a a film company to do what was a kind of a horror movie or something based in Tehran and smuggled operatives in. But uh, the Iranians were suspicious, and they began uh, querying this company and checking out its bona fides. And there was just enough created that was real to persuade yeah. the Iranians that these, uh, these, uh, the, the CIA operative who slipped into Iran was a, a real movie guy. But this uh, secrecy that Barnea wants to, uh, this new regime of secrecy that Barnea wants to uh, install in Israel is very different from what's going on in our CIA now. I mean, just uh, a couple of weeks ago, as we explained in last week's podcast, Director Bill Burns 
and other high officials summoned up summoned reporters up to Langley, Virginia, across the Potomac for a big briefing on its new China Mission Center. It was like an unveiling of a new TV show, you know, with lots of details of what they're going to do. And and they talked about recruiting a new technology boss, which is kind of an odd thing that they don't have one right now. But anyway, it was a fulsome press presentation. And we're not likely to see that under David Barnea. No, um, but what's interesting uh, is that he he's already picked up the reputation of being a reformer. He's only been director for four months now, but I'm told that he has already begun to restructure the agency, uh, adding new units. We don't know what they are because of the secrecy, but he's also changing things around. But we just don't know what what they are. You know. I suspect, however, down the road, it's going to be irresistible uh, for Mossad to restrain from bragging about some of its operations. After all, publication of such operations is a form of of uh, psychological warfare on the Iranians to show that they can't stop these Israeli operations inside Iran. Now, having said that, is Mossad popular in Israel? Are its operations, the details that we learn about these operations? Are they greeted warmly by the Israeli public? As you know, the American public has a really conflicted relationship about our CIA because of its history. Is, is Mossad in these operations and those operations, are they popular in Israel? I give that question an unqualified yes, indeed. The Mossad is probably the most popular government agency in Israel. It's got a legendary reputation. Joining the Mossad is known to be a a sort of the golden dream job for someone's career, whether they stay in the Mossad or then leave the Mossad and have that credential to show once they get out in whatever job they're looking for. Members of the Mossad are seen as sort of Jewish James Bonds. They're romantic figures. What we know of some of the operations that they've done, they're they're extraordinary. just in terms of detail and bravery and, and results. And of course, there are all the TV dramas and movies that have been spun right. out of uh, Mossad's history. Now, that's and, not and, to say that the Mossad hasn't made some errors. They have. They've had some terrible errors. Uh, for example, in the aftermath of the Munich massacre at the Munich Olympics in 1972, the Mossad set out to kill all of the Palestinian terrorists that were involved in that. And they killed a lot of them, but they also killed a few people who weren't terrorists at all. And one of the most prominent one was a Moroccan waiter at a restaurant. His name was Ahmed Bushiki. And they thought he was a Palestinian, but he was really just a, a Moroccan who was working as a waiter in uh, Norway. And they, um, they gunned him down. Massad may have uh, a legendary status uh, here in the United States and, you know, be uh cherished by uh, the average Israeli, but internationally, these hits inside Iran and other operations haven't endeared Israel to uh, its critics, has it? It hasn't. And, you know, one of the things about Barnea that I think people should know is that this requires a little bit of background, but bear with me here. The name of uh, Mossad in Hebrew means institute, but the full name of the spy agency is the Institute for Intelligence and Special Operations. The special operations are built into the title of the agency. 
and into its mandate. Now, I know that in Israel and in other intelligence agencies, there's always a sort of a debate between those who see their agency as one only to collect intelligence and others who see it as the intelligence as simply tactical information to carry out a special operation. Barnea is very much in the uh, school of those who believe in special operations. There have been Israeli Mossad directors who saw the agency as more of an intelligence gathering operation, but uh, Barnea isn't one of them. So I imagine that we're going to see more of those types of special operations under Barnea, but we're just not going to learn that much about them as we have about some of the previous ones. Well, we'll see down the road. But as I was uh, suggesting in my earlier question, these aggressive operations aren't exactly welcomed in other parts of the world, starting, of course, with Iran uh, and the Palestinians and allies of the Palestinians and allies of Iran, although it doesn't have all that many uh, allies. But uh, Europeans are kind of ambivalent about these operations inside Iran as well. Yeah. Well, one of the problems with Europe is that when the Israelis carry out these operations, they usually they use false identities. And oftentimes they're using a forged European passports, which doesn't please. Mm -hmm. Very annoying. Uh, Other times they do false flag operations where they recruit a spy and that spy thinks that he's actually spying for France when he's actually spying for Israel. Yeah. So that's one issue. There's also the United States has its own views of these operations. And that very much depends on who the president is at the time. So, for example, under Obama, when Obama was president and conducting secret negotiations with the Iranians, which ultimately resulted in the 2015 Iran nuclear accord, Israel was not only carrying out operations, which in the end, the Iranians blame on not only the Israelis, but the Americans as well. The Iranians see Israel and the United States as the great Satan and the little Satan. They're joined at the hip. So if Israel does something, then in the Iranian mind, America was also involved. And that's not far from the truth. And it's not only the Iranians who see it this way, but largely the Arab world. I remember when I was reporting on the assassination of Imad Mugnia, the Iranian-backed terrorist who was uh, responsible in great measure for the murder of uh, U.S. Marines, the blowing up of the U.S. Embassy in Beirut, and so on. The CIA really tried to stop publication of my story because they said the enemies of the United States and Israel will see it as an entirely uh, U.S.-Israeli combined uh, plot, which it was, uh, and they will retaliate against Americans. So. Israel is seen uh, in the Arab world and among the Iranians as a, a puppet, if you will, of the United States. Speaking of that relationship, what do you think that the CIA view is of Mossad in general and David Barnea in particular at this point? Before we get into that, I, I think I, I have to mention that, there, of course, there have been joint operations of the CIA and the, uh, and the Mossad. But there have been plenty of operations by the Mossad that have nothing to do with the Americans. The only thing that America's involvement, if you even want to use that word, would be that the Israelis simply inform 
the CIA that they're going to carry out something. But the CIA has absolutely nothing to do with it. There's a courtesy between intelligence agencies that share intelligence to let them know what they're doing. But that relationship with the United States has also been under strain during certain times. For example, when Donald Trump became president or when he was elected president, so we're talking November of 2016, he's not yet even in office yet. He hasn't even been inaugurated. Israeli Mossad knew of Trump's connections to Putin and Putin's associates, the Russian president, and they knew about Trump's personality, and they were afraid that Trump would take classified information that Israel had given to the CIA, and which is then passed on to the president in the president's daily briefing, and that Trump would compromise spill it to the Russians. Spill it to the Russians. And in fact, he did. He did. Their worst nightmare came true when right after Trump fired James Comey, he met with the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, and the Russian ambassador to the United States, Sergei Kislev. And in that meeting, he revealed a highly classified information, code information to these two Russians about a that came from a Israeli Mossad spy that was inside the Islamic State. And as a result of that leak, the Israelis curtailed their intelligence sharing with the Trump administration until 2018, when Trump withdrew from the Iran nuclear accord. And then the Israelis and the the CIA began cooperating joint operations against Iran. You might say that uh, that points out that uh, not only the U.S. and Israel, but Mossad and the CIA, uh, uh, Shin Bet and the FBI have had, uh, you might say they're friends with an asterisk. We spy on each other or we keep an eye on each other as well. Uh, Former CIA station chiefs in Israel have talked about Israeli intrusions into the U.S. embassy, into the home of the station chief, and so on. So uh, Mossad's not going to, or Shin Bet are not going to stop trying to keep track of what the CIA is doing inside Israel, which would include trying to recruit Israeli sources. And uh, Mossad, I suspect, despite its many disavowals over recent decades, has continued to try to recruit Americans uh, for their own secret uses. So it's going to be that relationship is going to continue to be one of, uh, how would you describe it? Friends with benefits or? Yeah, frenemies. Frenemies. There's a very interesting story about that. You know, the, um, before they moved the embassy up to Jerusalem under the Trump administration, the embassy was right on the beach, basically, in Tel Aviv. You've been there. You've seen it. And on the top of that embassy is all this electronic gear. So at one point, the Americans uh, wanted to move a section of the embassy to the top floor of an apartment just north of Tel Aviv in a town called Herzliya. Now, uh, the Israelis... uh, That's where Mossad is. Exactly. They, They refused to give them permission because when they saw 
where the apartment was, it was in a direct line to where the Mossad was. And with equipment on the roof, they could have intercepted mm-hmm. communication. So they said, no, thanks. We're not going to give you permission to do that. So yeah, they play this game. And um, they sometimes succeed. And a lot of times they don't. Jonathan Broder, it's always fun to talk to you about uh, subjects regarding the Middle East in general and Israel in, in particular. Folks listening today can read Jonathan Broder's full profile of David Barnea, the new chief of Mossad, over at our Spy Talk site on Substack. Until we uh, hear from you again, John, on the podcast, see you around and we'll welcome you back. Good talking to you, Jeff. So you can read John Broder's full profile of David Barnea over at spytalk.co. Gene? Yeah, Mossad really wreathed in mystery. It's almost a mythical organization. So it's interesting to hear about the real flesh and blood individual who's now going to be running their operations. And my ears really perked up when you and Jonathan talked about his emphasis on special operations. This is going to be interesting to watch. Indeed, it is. I think uh, despite his mandate for uh, Omerta among Mossad's alumni, I think we will hear more about Israeli operations in Iran, if, if, if only from the Iranians who have uh, yelped loudly about uh, previous operations. So we're going to hear more about that. But the new head, David Barnea, certainly is going to keep a lower profile than his predecessor. So Jonathan Broder, who you just heard from, is a uh, contributor to the Spy Talk Substack newsletter. Remember to subscribe to that. But in just a moment, more on Chinese drones. This week, Federal Communications Commissioner Brendan Carr called for beginning the process of adding DJI, a Chinese drone manufacturer, to what is called the covered list, which would prohibit federal dollars from purchasing drones from the company. Why? Because of concerns about the data they're collecting and where it could end up. This follows a report in Axios that despite security worries, DJI drones were recently purchased by the FBI and Secret Service. We spoke to Axios political reporter Lachlan Marquet and asked first for more information about the drones and the company that makes them. Yeah, they're really the market leader in consumer unmanned aerial systems. It's something like, you know, it's 70% plus of the global market for these devices. They're really the dominant company. They're naturally Chinese-owned. Their headquarters is in Shenzhen. Uh, But they also have a a pretty large U.S. presence, both in the consumer market and uh, controversially in Intel recently, at least in the both federal and state and local government markets as well. So agencies like the Interior Department, for instance, used DJI a lot before before they grounded their fleet to monitor federal lands. Um, You know, in large open spaces, technology like that can be very useful. So. So there really isn't another company that's rivaling them in terms of market share. They, they've really locked down a dominant position. So the Pentagon says they pose a potential national security threat. What are they worried about? Well, they didn't go into too much detail, but the general concern is that these systems, by definition, sort of by their nature, use, use GPS. They have HD cameras that are attached to them, and you know they're, they're constantly internet connected. So it sort of stems from the larger concern with Chinese government and Chinese intelligence access to 
technology products, particularly internet connected technology products, that that could be remotely monitored or that data transmitted back to a third party in China or elsewhere. So the Pentagon statement that dubbed them a national security risk, while not going into extensive detail, you know, that's sort of the underlying concern is that, um, you know, is whether or not these products are secure enough and whether there are enough safeguards in place to prevent data packets being transmitted to third parties. So what kind of data would they be collecting that could be of concern to the Pentagon and others? Uh, yeah, GPS data, I, I think, is a, a big one, um, essentially knowing where federal assets are at any given time and what's being monitored. That's really sort of, I think, the, the major component of it. You know, when, anytime you have a, a really any federal agency, but particularly federal law enforcement agencies, they do a lot of obviously very sensitive work. And you don't want a potentially hostile foreign power or foreign intelligence ter- service to know what they are watching at what time. Uh, to you know, be able to track uh, routines in U.S. counter surveillance uh, efforts, so things along those lines. That you know, theoretically, these sorts of products could pose a, a, a potential risk. In now, is it theoretical, or has, have there been well, actual <laughs> instances where this has happened that we know of? Yeah, I mean, it depends who you ask. I, I think it is largely theoretical in the drone space right now. Reports are widespread, and it's it's more or less confirmed. Certainly, if you ask the U.S. intelligence community, they will tell you that they know for a fact that it's routine for Chinese technology companies to share sensitive information, including sensitive U.S. government information, with their parent companies in China or with the Chinese government. By law, Chinese-based technology companies must make this sort of data available to the government in order to operate there, in order to operate at all. DJI, though, is is adamant that its products, simply the way that they're built and designed, do not allow that sort of data transmission to third parties. So from their perspective, this is entirely a moot point because they themselves are never getting that user data, that customer data from their individual devices. And so they're never even in a position to transmit that back to to Beijing or to any Chinese government entity or any, any other entity at all. So you know, this is a very contentious space in a very contentious issue in the drone space, precisely because uh, DJI and other Chinese companies feel that they've been unfairly singled out and lumped in with companies with Chinese owned companies in other sectors where there is a more documented history of that sort of data sharing. So despite the Pentagon warning, the FBI and Secret Service have recently bought some of these drones. Tell us about those purchases. Yeah, so we we stumbled on some some federal procurement records for, for both of those agencies. The FBI bought uh, 19 DJI drones back in June. Secret Service uh, bought, I believe it was six of them. And this was right around the time, excuse me, I said June, I should have said July, because it was right around the time. As a matter of fact, the Secret Service was three days after the Pentagon released the statement saying that these drones had caused or presented this national security risk. So the timing was pretty dramatic. And, you know, some experts I spoke with basically said, well, you know, it's, it's possible that they were buying these devices um, in order to develop countermeasures or counter surveillance or basically understand potential threats that these devices might pose. And we looked through the the public records in in, in the files for these agencies, and they, they didn't really seem to support that. The Secret Service wrote that the drones would supplement the agency's existing fleet of small unmanned aircraft. And the FBI basically said that these were the only drones that could do everything they needed to do at a, you know, at an acceptable price point. That's something that really any DJI customer, government or otherwise, would tell you is that they're probably the best consumer drones you can get for the price. 
But of course, the only question when it comes to things that the FBI is buying, particularly surveillance technology, is not just are they being good stewards of taxpayer money, but are they buying systems that we know are secure and that we know will remain secure throughout the lifetimes of the products? And I would think a concern with the Secret Service, too. They protect the president. Certainly. And there have been reports, actually. I wasn't able to confirm these, I should say. But, um, you know, there are a lot of websites that monitor consumer drone usage and they like sort of tracking where drones are seen flying, et cetera. And there have been reports of DJI drones being seen outside the White House and whether those were flown by tourists or the Secret Service or someone else, we don't know. But it's something that certainly federal officials are keeping a close eye on. So, as you say, there don't appear to be good alternatives at the same price point. Even alternatives at a different price point, I'm wondering if a lot of them contain Chinese components and if, in essence, they might pose a security risk as well. It's possible. There has been a lot of action in Congress and in federal agencies looking to crack down on the use of Chinese technology components in these sorts of consumer products. And we see companies like Hike Vision, which manufactures uh, uh, cameras and surveillance equipment, Huawei, which is the you know, telecom giant uh, in China. They're being added to these lists of companies. It's called the Commerce Department's export list that basically, um, you know, it, it heavily restricts the use of how their how their components can be used or purchased or, you know, how U.S. companies can sell technology to those firms. So there's much more attention being paid to the individual components that go into these technologies, not just the sort of the end product itself. When it comes to the DJI drones, what did the FBI and Secret Service have to say about the potential security risk that they pose? They didn't say much. And um, that's more or less what I expected. You know, they said, you know, we can't possibly comment on the methods that we use to, to gather intelligence or, you know, they wouldn't even confirm that they would, you know, that that's what they were using these, these things for. So, you know, operational security is a legitimate concern for these agencies. And you know, I understand from a certain perspective why they wouldn't want to be talking to a reporter about what they're doing with sensitive surveillance technology. And, you know, there were some inquiries from Congress as well after our story dropped. And to my knowledge, there haven't been uh, much in the way of responses to that, although more may be forthcoming. So you mentioned the Pentagon warning, which was relatively recent, but concerns about these drones go back years, don't they? They do. And as a matter of fact, the Department of Homeland Security, which is uh, Secret Service's parent agency, was warning back in 2017 in a bulletin posted by their uh, Los Angeles field office that this company was transmitting sensitive U.S. government data back to China. Now, that is vehemently denied by DJI, and, and they point to evidence uh, since then that they say disproves that. But you know, this is a company that clearly has faced these questions before, which makes it more puzzling that the U.S. government would go with that vendor uh, over another, including, uh, you know, there are plenty of U.S. companies that manufacture drones. They don't they're not the size that DJI is. They don't have quite the market share that they do. But, you know, there certainly all are alternatives in this market. You know, and it's a market that, you know, U.S. intelligence agencies in particular and the, the country at large would like to see developed so that we can better compete with uh, with Chinese manufacturers. So that in itself would seem to be an incentive for federal procurement officers to go with American companies over Chinese-made ones or, or, or drones made anywhere else, for that matter. And you mentioned the Interior Department using them. They grounded some of their drone fleet over security concerns, correct? And that was the Interior Department as opposed to <laughs> FBI and Secret Service. Yeah, they grounded. It was basically their entire non-emergency drone fleet they grounded. 
you know, so I think they still have ones up in the air to monitor wildfires and things along those lines. But, you know, it's likely hundreds or thousands. We don't know the exact number of drones in their fleet. And, you know, they not just grounded that. I believe that was 2019. They made that decision. And then they revisited it a year later and decided that they were going to keep that fleet grounded. So from their perspective, any concerns that are here have not been adequately addressed. And like you say, this is not a company, uh, excuse me, this is not an agency that's handling things quite so sensitive as the, the safety and security of the highest ranking officials in the U.S. government. So, um, you know, if those if those concerns are are there and are, are persisting for the Interior Department, it's hard to see why they wouldn't also be there for agencies like FBI or Secret Service. And in 2020, didn't the Commerce Department raise a red flag about this company, too? Yeah. So they were added to this entities list that I mentioned earlier, which basically bars U.S. companies from exporting their products for use in products manufactured by the companies on the list. So it's short of sanctions. It's not quite that serious, but it's very often a precursor to sanctions. And it, it's, you know, it has symbolic weight in that you know, clearly, if you are added to this list, you're being scrutinized at, at the highest levels of the U.S. government. So you know, it's, it's really across multiple agencies that DJI and, and a number of other of these major Chinese technology firms have been, you know, have been really heavily scrutinized. Do you think it's possible that the FBI and the Secret Service weren't aware of the security concerns about these drones? That is hard to believe, but I've learned not to underestimate the, the siloed nature and the, the red tape inherent in the federal procurement process. In their defense, just a few months before the Pentagon released the statement dubbing this company a national security risk, they actually came out with a study or, or a part of a study was released or leaked that showed that they had cleared two DJI drones for federal use. The statement that they subsubsequently released walked that back, said that it was premature, it wasn't vetted, and it wasn't true. And they've continued behind the scenes to, to study it, uh, if you ask the Pentagon. But like we said, you know, they weren't the only federal agency raising these concerns, you know, as far back as four or five years ago. We were hearing various federal offices note that this could be an issue or at least it was something worthy of taking a look at. Um, So I think there have been significant red flags raised outside of even that most recent Pentagon statement. What's likely to happen now? Well, like I said, Congress is pressing for answers. Whatever details are divulged about drone purchases by uh, federal law enforcement agencies, I have to imagine would be pretty sensitive information. So I'm not sure that the public will be privy to whatever answers, if any, are given by those agencies to members of Congress asking about it. We ha- have not seen additional DJI purchases in those procurement records since we initially published our story last month. That's not to say that there might not be more on the horizon, but I think. You are going to see procurement officers take a second look at the company fairly or otherwise in light of some of the the scrutiny that was applied in the wake of our piece. As far as I know, you're not a drone operator, (laughs) uh, but you've delved into this as a reporter. I'm wondering what you think, whether you think there really is a danger in having the FBI and the Secret Service using these. You know, uh, one of the experts I spoke with basically said that... (laughs) It is entirely possible that DJI is being completely upfront and truthful and transparent about their software being incapable of transmitting data to these third parties, which, of course, is the main concern here. But according to this expert, they're basically one operating system or one software update away from having that capability. 
And I just don't know that we being, you know, the U.S. government being folks who are in charge of these procurement decisions have enough visibility on the underlying technology to be able to say that not only does it not pose this risk right now, but we can ensure that it will not pose this risk in the future. And once agencies have these fleets of drones, you know, they're going to stay operational for, you know, you would expect at least a few years. You would hope that they're not buying these for a one-time or temporary use. And so that I think is, you know, it goes to the heart of the defense of these companies is yes, you know, you may have the best intentions and, you know, you may have structured these products in a way to account for all these concerns, but China is not going anywhere as a geopolitical foe. And they are certainly not scaling down their ambitions to spy and steal technology and use the very sort of tech savvy intelligence services they have at their disposal to try to pry loose information on U.S. government activities. So it's a persistent concern. And uh, the precautions that the U.S. government takes needs to need to be equally persistent. And I'm not sure we can confidently say that in this case. That was Lachlan Marquet, political reporter at Axios. Surveillance drones always have raised a lot of privacy and civil liberties questions, but drones can be an incredibly useful tool. I've seen them used after a natural disaster, for instance, to go up in the air and assess the extent of destruction. And I heard a fascinating story from somebody in private industry who told me that his company owned a big plot of land and very rough terrain, and they had used perimeter guards to protect it. And then a couple of years ago, they bought drones. They put them up in the air and oh my gosh, they discovered a meth lab was being operated from the middle of their property. And this guy said he thought the the security guards had been doing the best they could, but they didn't go into the interior because it was such rugged terrain. The drone gave them a visibility they didn't have before. Yeah, I don't think we know the full extent yet, uh, the possible extent yet of uh the use of drones in our work life and our personal lives. And well, it's a whole new world on that end. But regards to your story, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that U.S. manufacturers apparently weren't encouraged or tasked by the government to produce these drones. I mean, we're the world's leading technological power. I'm, I'm gobsmacked that apparently nobody stepped forward long ago to block the purchase of surveillance drones from China despite so many red flags going over it by various agencies. But this isn't China. We don't ask our industries to do things. There isn't that kind of tight coordination that you have in the Chinese system between the government and private industry. I think that's one explanation for it. But, you know, these aren't the only concerns about Chinese technology. We all know about Huawei, the telecommunications company, and and how many red flags that's raised. But there are also Chinese surveillance cameras made by a company called HIK, which are ubiquitous in the United States and around the world. And according to an article that that I just read in The Atlantic this week, they were ordered removed from federal facilities two years ago. But the government hasn't been able to find them all because there are so many and some of them have been labeled as something other than HIK devices. Good Lord. You know. Many decades ago, the CIA tasked Lockheed Martin to develop a spy plane. Some 20 years ago, I think it was, the CIA set up InQtel to uh, spur technology. So there's nothing, nothing new in the intelligence community uh, asking 
private industry to develop certain tools for our security. And boy, what what you've discovered in the segment is a, a big hole in uh, our security processes and our technological development uh, of use to the government. So, boy, oh boy, what a segment. Anyway, that's another week of Spy Talk. Hope to see you next week. I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Jean Meserve. Thanks a lot for joining us. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.